Welcome to the Bob Sadek Show, your home for insight and in-depth analysis. Listen live right here or join us at bobsadek.com. That's C-A-D-E-K, bobsadek.com. The Bob Sadek Show, ideas, not attitude, information, not talking points. Hello, friends. I'm Bob Zadek, host of the country's longest-running libertarian broadcast, nationally streamed at 8 a.m. Pacific Time Sundays on the 860 AM app. The archives of my Bob Zadek Show podcast hold 15 years of major issue discussion and is the ideal resource to revisit our prior missteps since so many seem to reappear. I promise you, in-depth discussion on social, political, and economic issues that really matter, always with the ideal guest, accessible and entertaining, our standard ideas, not attitude. Today's guest, Mike Greenberg, exceeds those, ex- those standards. Mike is a litigation attorney with the Institute for Justice, handling cases promoting personal property rights, economic liberty, and free speech. He has been particularly active in civil asset forfeiture abuse, a topic which we will explore in detail today. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Bob. I'm thrilled to be here. Needless to say, we would not have a country today had we had the Constitution not been ratified by the states in 1788. We would not have had ratification without a promise by the ratification proponents to the ratifying states to immediately after ratification amend the Constitution to add a Bill of Rights. The Fourth Amendment contained in the Bill of Rights provides, and I quote, and I'll add, these are sacred words to me, the right of the people to be secure against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, end quote. I'll repeat, shall not be violated. As you will learn today, this sacred right is routinely violated by government and for no other reason than to allow government to take and retain private property. The Institute for Justice, uh, they issued a report with caught my attention way back when it was first issued about seven or eight years ago. The subject of that report was aptly entitled Policing for Profit. Mike, before we get into the details of a case we're going to discuss, and at the risk of offering a spoiler, the case is entitled U.S. Vaults. Before we get into the U.S. Vaults case, Set the stage for us. What is the concept of civil asset forfeiture? So civil forfeiture is a a device that allows law enforcement to seize and permanently confiscate your your things, your your cash, cars, real property, jewelry, what have you, by arguing that it was merely involved in or the proceeds of criminal activity. Importantly, they don't actually have to prove that you committed a crime or that anybody committed a crime or convict you of a crime beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, and it's a, it's a dangerous, uh, uh, major problem for property rights in this country. Now, I'll just add a little supplement to make it a bit even more drastic. You said to seize property. I want, I want to correct the temporary sounding nature of that. It's not only seize, that might be interpreted as seize for the minute. Let me add, unless you think it's inappropriate, let me say seize and retain your property and the burden now falls upon you, who's, you the citizen whose property was seized to get it back. So it sort of profoundly, if the audience says, that sounds like guilty until proven innocent with the jiggling of the burden, is it that bad, Mike? 
That's exactly right. Yeah, uh, there are, there are many problems with civil forfeiture, and and you're absolutely correct that it is seized and permanently confiscate uh, is is what civil forfeiture uh, gets at. But there are two chief buckets that the problems with civil forfeiture fall into. One is what I'll call the due process bucket, and that's as you mentioned, the government doesn't actually need to convict you of a crime uh, or or convict anybody of a crime to permanently keep it with civil forfeiture. They don't have to prove anybody did anything wrong beyond a reasonable doubt as a criminal case typically requires. So as you said, you're essentially forced to prove your own innocence or your property's own innocence, which frankly is nuts. This country uh, ordinarily requires a presumption of innocence. A couple other due process related problems with civil forfeiture. It's a civil case, so there's no right to a lawyer. Often there's no right to a jury. Uh, often the there are Kafka-esque procedures that you need to figure out in order to uh, uh, contest the forfeiture. And related to that, often the value of the property that is seized, while substantial, uh, is not high enough to justify the expense of hiring a lawyer and taking the, the, the uh, large amount of time that you need to invest in defending yourself. So people often rationally just walk away rather than actually going through the process of proving their own innocence. Um, the second big problem is uh, what you mentioned, the, the, the report that uh, our organization put out several years ago, policing for profit. In most places where civil forfeiture exists, the very agencies that are deciding whether to seize and then move for forfeiture permanently confiscate a piece of property are the agencies that then receive the proceeds of that property back into their budget. And that gives them seriously perverse incentives. The more that they seize and forfeit, the more money that they then have for their own salaries, for bonuses, for new equipment, and, and so on. And it encourages them to focus more on this type of activity, seizing cash, cars, things like that, rather than on things that might more directly threaten public health and safety in their policing activities. And what you just said, I would, that's so important, Mike, as of course you know, but I want to be sure it sinks in to our listeners. We have police departments who are hired and paid. These are local police departments, cities, counties, etc., state police. They are hired to protect the customers, the citizens, from bad acts. That's their job. And that's why they are paid. And if they don't do that, they're not doing the very purpose they are hired. Policing for profit, on the other hand, encourages police departments and state police and the like to spend their time looking for activities where, where they can seize property, traffic stops, broken headlights and taillights. Classic example of a minority a uh, citizen driving a fancy car, they will say, made me suspicious. This person didn't look like they could afford that car. Let's stop them. And then they do, they have their tools like police dogs, notoriously inaccurate, who will alert for drugs. So they get a treat and the police dog alerted. Now there's reason, now there's reasonable cause to search the, search the entire car, and lo and behold, they find a joint, and they also find $1,000. $1,000 is seized. The individual driving the car has just paid $1,000 out of his pocket, and that individual has to go to court to get it back. And sometimes that individual is just driving through town, doesn't even live there. Who's going to come back to get $1,000? You just end up, okay, keep the $1,000, and I hate police. Oh, and, and that's the transaction. So that's civil asset forfeiture as a concept. Now, there's one other concept which I can't help uh, but ask you to explain. Uh, and we're, we're going to talk, Mike, about a concept called equitable sharing. And I will tee up the issue by saying, Mike will explain uh, how the federal government, which doesn't have the manpower to enforce 
federal drug laws, for example. There's no federal police force. Well, there is, but they don't call themselves that. There's lots of federal police forces. They may work for EPA. They may work for everybody else, but they they have the power and the equipment of a federal police force. So they can't enforce federal drug laws. Also, if you live in a small town or or county, uh, you may not care that much about drug laws. You want your cops to make sure nobody breaks into your house or harms your family. That's why you really want police. So, and that's their mission, as I said. Tell us how uh, equitable sharing, taking advantage of the power of civil assets forfeiture, in effect, diverts police, local police, from their core mission of protecting you and I, Mike, to carrying out the dirty work of the feds. Well, you teed up the issue perfectly. Yeah. Uh, equitable sharing is a system that allows uh, the proceeds from uh, forfeited cash, cars, what have you, to be split among state and federal law enforcement agencies. And the way that this happens, that the federal government, as you mentioned, wants certain drug laws in- enforced or wants certain priorities enforced. And so what, what happens is when uh, state and local officials will uh, engage in the, the, exactly the kind of you know roadside stop that you identified earlier, and essentially you know take a thousand dollars for civil forfeiture or take that person's car for civil forfeiture because they think maybe it was connected to some kind of drug crime or something like that, and then they pass the asset over to the federal government to actually prosecute the forfeiture case, and what happens is. The federal government handles all the paperwork, all the judicial proceedings for the uh, prosecution of that case, and then remits uh, a, a fair share or, you know, quote unquote, fair share of the proceeds that it generates back to the local law enforcement agency, gives them a little pat on the head and says, good job for, for doing what we want you to do. Um, it is, you know, it, it, it doubles down on the perverse financial incentives and uh, it's a thing that is at play in the U.S. private vault case that we're going to discuss today, state and federal law enforcement working together uh, because one or the other didn't quite have the resources that the other needed, but together they each get to forfeit property and they're each going to get a cut of of, of property that's forfeited. And, uh, and by dint of equitable sharing, which is in effect the federal government paying a commission to local government to doing all the all the work at the street level, and it says here's your cut. So a local police force, which has to allocate resources, it'll never have enough between protecting your house from a break-in for which they get no money from the federal government, or a traffic stop on the interstate for which they're going to make a bucket of money from the feds. They, in effect, which, by the way, citizens don't care about, but so the local police force is now bribed, if you will, to divert resources from the core mission of protecting my house from being broken into or my family from being harmed or shoplifting, divert resources to activities that the community doesn't care about, at least not as much. But the police make more money. Okay. So now, if, okay, fine. If I can just jump in and, and, and add one thing on that, Bob, there's one other problem with equitable sharing along those lines, and it's that many state legislatures have uh, uh, ended that causal connection between uh, a, a, a traffic stop and the money going directly to the law enforcement agency that is, that is uh, you know, seizing and forfeiting property. They instead require that property uh, the proceeds of forfeited property to go into some kind of general fund rather than directly to the law enforcement agency or directly back to the prosecutor's office. Uh, and that's a great thing. What the equitable sharing loophole uh, uh, program allows the, uh, those agencies to do, it still lets them get, uh, when they pass forfeiture, you know, forf- seized and forfeited property off to the federal government, they still get that cut back from the federal government directly rather than it going to the, the general you know, state fund the, the way that the legislature intended. Okay, so now we've set up, we've set up 
civil asset forfeiture. I want one more setup, and that's will start with the Fourth Amendment and tell us, Mike, the theory of the process set up by the founders in the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution, enacted in 1791, what the founders did to make sure that government law enforcement does, we, we citizens are protected against that kind of activity. Just give us the bullet points of how the process works before there is an invasion of one's privacy protected by the Fourth Amendment. What's the process in theory? And then we'll get down to the ugly facts of U.S. vaults. In theory, your, your property is your castle and the government cannot uh, search or invade your, your, your property or your privacy uh, without a judicially authorized warrant. And that warrant must be supported by probable individualized probable cause that you have done something wrong, or there's something wrong, evidence of something wrong on your property. Uh, th it's that simple. Now the warrant, uh, and what's important is who issues the warrant? A, a judicial officer. Ah, ah, Michael, so this is, our audience will recognize, this is the system of checks and balances in process. The judiciary gets between the cops and kicking down your front door. Hey, the theory, we're talking about theory. I will mind the audience. You are not hearing Bob and Mike being naive. We are talking about the theory. The theory is a, a judge sworn to, to uh, enforce and defend the constitution. That judge says, before I give you permission to kick down the door, and to seize property, convince me you have reason to single out Bob or Mike. And that's what the probable cause is. All of that is the theory. So in theory, it ought to work. The police can't just not like you. They have to persuade an independent official, a judge, that there's a reason to single out Mike's house and property uh, and castle for attack by the, by the police. So that's the system. And that's the system, in fact. Now, we'll, we'll see the breakdowns in a moment. So we start with, as we look at sort of the system on paper, we say, yeah, that don't want to work. So now... Tell us, we're now going to spend the rest of the show learning about what happens in practice. It all sounds pretty protective of our rights. So when I say we're going to do a little parlor game, Mike, I'm going to say U.S. vaults, and you're going to tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, innovative ways of violating your rights. Okay, so uh, tell us about, tell us why the... What what U.S. Bolt's case is all about, set the stage for us, and then tell us, uh, uh, we'll, we'll learn for the rest of the hour what I.J.'s involvement was and what you have done and why and what you hope to accomplish. But first, U.S. Bolt's, set us up as to what happened. Sure. So I'll, I'll give a little background on, because uh, it's a, a bit of a lengthy uh, uh, factual background here to, to get uh, listeners up to speed. So we represent uh, several clients uh, who live in the Los Angeles area and like surely countless other Americans, uh, they needed a safe place to store their valuables. Um, two of our clients, for example, Paul and Jennifer Snitko, they live in a, in a fairly wild prior, wildfire prone area uh, and they wanted a, a safe place to store family heirlooms that you know, uh, wouldn't be damaging if, if God forbid a fire came by their house. We represent a few other people, Jenny Pearson's and her husband, for example, who, uh, had about $20,000 in precious metals as a retirement nest egg. And they wanted a safe place to store that a totally reasonable thing in older days, people, uh, would go to a bank and they'd rent a safe deposit box for that. 
Um, and that's still theoretically possible, but a lot of banks are, are full, are, you know, don't have their, any available safe deposit boxes. Um, and so this company, U.S. Private Vaults, opened up in Beverly Hills a few years ago, and all they do is safe deposit boxes. Uh, they had a convenient location. They had good hours. Uh, their prices were good for renting the box. And they were even a member of the Beverly Hills Chamber of Commerce. And so we represent seven clients who were clients of U.S. private vaults and rented boxes there. Unbeknownst to our clients and to surely uh, the overwhelming majority of the 700 plus uh, people who rented boxes at U.S. private vaults, law enforcement was investigating the business itself and owners of the business. Apparently, uh, they had some evidence that uh, managers of the business uh, were engaged in some wrongdoing from the business, whether that was financial malfeasance or some, you know, uh, some kind of drug-related crime out of the business. Um, but the evidence from that law enforcement investigation was limited to just that, the, the, the business and its owners and its managers. They had no evidence against any individual box holder. In fact, they didn't even know who most of the box holders were. They had no way of knowing. Fast forward to early 2021, the government secures a criminal indictment against the business U.S. private vault. Along with that, it applied to a judicial officer for a warrant to search and seize U.S. private vaults, the business, and to seize its business equipment. The criminal allegation was that the business itself was engaged in wrongdoing or the managers were engaged in wrongdoing. Um, and so it seized the, the business's equipment, computers, things like that, as evidence and proceeds of wrongdoing, or it, it sought to do that with the warrant at least. But here's where things go off the rails for our, for our totally innocent clients. The government's warrant application also sought to seize the nest of the vault, the relatively worthless metal superstructure and the box, the actual boxes that contained all of our box renters' valuables. Technically, that was the business's property as well, and the government wanted to seize it as, you know, the, the business's proceeds of its malfeasance. Um, and the problem with that is that by seizing the, the metal boxes that contain all of, all of the valuables, the government is necessarily going to come into contact with the box holder's stuff. And so what the government tells the magistrate in its warrant application is, look, we're planning to seize the boxes themselves but we're only going to look inside the boxes for two purposes, to identify who the owner is and to help facilitate them reuniting them with their stuff and to make an inventory of the contents of the boxes solely for the purpose of protecting our agents against claims of theft or loss during this, you know, seizure process. It specifically said in its application, the warrant would not authorize a criminal search of any box. The magistrate signs off on that and the warrant issues on that understanding. That takes us to uh, the uh, lawsuit itself or the day of the raid. Uh, our lawsuit, which you know, comes later, uh, uncovered that the government deliberately misled the magistrate. Months earlier, high-level agents in the FBI's Los Angeles field office had made the determination that when they eventually took down U.S. private vaults, they were going to seize, keep, and permanently confiscate or permanently move for civil forfeiture on everything they found in those boxes that is worth more than $5,000. Why $5,000? As a matter of FBI policy, that's the minimum amount that they move for forfeiture on because that's their break-even point after accounting for the labor hours and the paperwork and so on it requires to successfully move for forfeiture. So in other words, if they stood to make a profit by seizing someone, the stuff in someone's boxes, they were going to do so. If they stood to not make a profit, they weren't interested. They told the magistrate none of this. So, so they, this sounds like the, like a criminal enterprise. I'm, I'm always saying to myself, okay, Mike, what are you not telling us? Um, it sounds like you're, you're either writing a novel or trying to plead the case that these FBI agents should go to prison. So is there, if we stop here in the story, we have FBI agents who were in it just for the money. Can you put any kind of a gloss 
on this behavior so far? Because then we'll get into the case itself. But if there was an FBI agent or somebody from the DOJ on this show, what would that individual say? Hold it, Mike. You're not telling the audience the following. Is there any gloss that we are cooking the books and trying to mislead my audience? Or is it? I, I have nothing, Bob. I mean, uh, the, the government in, in this case uh, conceded that it misled the magistrate. It didn't share this plan with, with the magistrate. What, what they would say is, look, you know, we uh, have the ability, you know, knowing that we were going to come into contact and, and inventory these items, you know, it just so happens that we ran into a bunch of criminal things that we think are criminal proceeds. But, you know, there's no defending uh, that they had this plan all along, that they were going to uh, uh, assume that any amount of, of cash or, or any valuables worth more than $5,000 that they encountered were per se evidence of criminality. There's no defense. Uh, but, you know, behind the scenes, as they're getting ready to execute the raid, they're taking steps that will help them move for forfeiture on every, on, on every piece of property uh, that's valuable that they encounter. Uh, while they're representing to the magistrate on one hand uh, that they're only going to inventory the boxes uh, and not conduct a criminal search, they're putting a plan in place that would allow them to do just that. Uh, I'll fast forward now to the day of the raid. The most glaring example of them, uh, you know, explicitly moving on this plan to conduct criminal search rather than an inventory search is that they worked with local police departments to ensure that canine units, drug sniffing dogs would be on site. You know, this is exactly a thing that we talked about earlier. Um, true to their plan for every box that they opened in which they estimate, they estimated that there would be $5,000 or something worth $5,000 or more. They ran it past a drug sniffing dog. Now, astute listeners might, uh, be thinking to themselves, what purpose does a drug sniffing dog serve in inventorying cash that you find or documenting that it was in the box? The answer is that it, it serves no such purpose as agents eventually admitted, but it can be useful as potential evidence in a subsequent forfeiture case. Another example is the inventory form that agents were, were tasked with filling out as they processed the boxes. Uh, it instructed agents to note that if they found cash, to note things like how it was bundled, if it had a, any particular odor, or if there appeared to be any drug residue on it. Again, that doesn't really help you forestall claims of theft or loss, which are the, the reasons for doing an inventory search. Um, but uh, the, the, the details of those sorts of things would be very helpful in uh, determining whether the cash is potentially related to a crime. And on the flip side, um, when it came to actually documenting what was in the box, we would regularly see entries like, miscellaneous coins or assorted jewelry or miscellaneous items even um you'd think any halfway decent inventory would things like the quantity or the color of the items or you know for, in the case of miscellaneous items even identify what kind of item we're talking about here but often that wasn't the case even with cash the entries would just say uncounted currency um, the government was, was, as it was, it was clear from the beginning, the government was far more concerned with potential criminal evidence than an actual inventory. And so. Now, give us a sense of the magnitude of this is staggering. And uh, even though the audience is desensitized on quantity, having heard over and over again in the news, well, a trillion six, a trillion seven. So one gets desensitized. When you talk in terms of trillions on the evening news, $100 sounds like Weimar Germany or something when you have a Deutschmark for $10 gazillion. Uh, so give us a sense of the magnitude of how many innocent citizens, not one of whom was included in the crime, how much, how many citizens had their prop? They woke up one morning and they no longer had access to their own property 
even though they did nothing wrong. And, and give us a sense of the amount of cash involved and the value of the property, just to put this in perspective. Sure. There were more than 700 people who were customers of U.S. Private Vaults who woke up one morning to a story on the morning news or in the LA Times or what have you saying, oh my gosh, all my valuables are gone. And the aggregate number of uh, valuables that the, uh, the FBI eventually moved for forfeiture on, and they did this in one swoop, one document lists every single thing that they moved for forfeiture on all at once. It was more than $80 million in cash and millions more in uh, uh, precious metals and jewelry and other valuable. So it, it easily approaches $100 million, if not exceeds it, all in one swoop, just in, in a couple days' work and in one, one document that they filed for forfeiture. Now, to, to add a, um, to give the human perspective, so put us in the lives, in the minds of one or a hypothetical client of IJ who was a customer of U.S. Vaults. They wake up in the morning and they discover one way or another, they discover a raid. They probably saw that on the local news. And then they realize it was a raid on a company where they had their valuables. And what did they then, they, did they try to get their property back? What did they experience before they found their way to you as they did nothing wrong they were, they were simply citizens of Southern California going about their lives and now denied their valuables, their, their children's letters, whatever was in the vault, they don't have access to it. Tell us what, what, their, what they experienced before they found their way to competent counsel, the Institute for Justice. Yeah. All of our clients were, were dumbfounded. They're perfectly innocent people who, uh, just about all of them, you know, are, their, their experience with law enforcement was, well, I'm a law abiding citizen. What could possibly ever go wrong in my life, essentially? Uh, and then they see the story on the news and they bolt over, you know, I, I, I can, I can recall our clients, Paul and Jennifer Snitko bolting over to, uh, the U S private vaults location. And there's nothing for them to do. There's a sign on the door that says, oh, if you're a box holder, go online, fill out this form identifying who you are, uh, and the FBI will be in touch with you soon. Uh, and hundreds of people did exactly that. They had no idea what had happened or, or, or why their property was seized or, 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 or uh, what the government wanted with it or what even U.S. private vaults, the company, had, had done wrong. And they had done nothing wrong, but they had to, uh, you know, go through this process of identifying themselves to the FBI uh, and then wait. And they heard nothing but silence for weeks and weeks on end uh, because the FBI had no real process for returning people's things. Uh, unbeknownst to our clients, as the ones who had uh, valuables more than $5,000, the FBI wasn't planning to return it at the end of those few weeks. It was planning to move for forfeiture on it. Uh, and so uh, that, that is uh, how, you know, our clients found, found us is, you know, we're getting dead silence from the FBI. We didn't do anything wrong and we want some answers on what happened to our stuff. Uh, and that's when we got involved and filed a lawsuit on behalf of seven people. Uh, the FBI had seized their property and wasn't returning it. And there was no reason that anyone could think of, of why the FBI would have it. Now, I will shamelessly promote IJ. Uh, Michael did not put me up to this. IJ is a public interest law firm which does not charge fees to its clients. It does so because it wants to right the wrongs committed by government who abuse citizens and the citizens need help because government is bigger and IJ levels the playing field. So, um, just curious, Mike, not, uh, not an important issue in our discussion, but did one of these uh, box holders find you and told their friends, um, I found IJ, you may, or did, 
how did it come just mechanically? How did it come? How did they find you? And how did you manage to get seven clients? Now, I will quickly say to my audience, it's not as if you're ambulance chasers. Why would you chase ambulance if you're doing your work for free? So if you're in the audience, do not think IJ collected the way when there's an, uh, a, an airline crash and these tort lawyers go out to the scene and hand out business cards. At least that's what happens in the movies. This is the opposite. So just tell us a little bit of the human interest part of it, how the how the these individuals found their way to you, either individually or collectively, just in a few words. Well, that's that very kind of you, Bob. Yeah, we we chase principles, not not our not to line our pockets. And so we saw the story uh, that the FBI had conducted this raid, and it seemed to, to immediately to us to violate the Fourth Amendment to go after people's things uh, without any individualized probable cause as to those people. And so what we did. Uh, to identify, because we had no way of identifying who the box holders were ourselves, we just on the internet put out a little uh, a form with with a couple like promoted ads, uh, trying you know as hopefully people would Google U.S. private vaults raid lawyer or you know something along those lines, and so that our website would come up and they could say, you know this is someone that can specifically help me, someone that's specifically looking out for this issue, uh, who is not in it to make a buck, but is in it to establish a precedent that this can't happen to other people in the future. So uh, you were uh, marketing, trying to figure out some way to find people to accept your services for free. Uh, that's, that's what you were doing. Please let us help you at no cost to you. But we are just in it for the principle. So you you found these clients. And one would think, well, as my audience knows, I'm a lawyer, although I'm not a litigator. And uh, often, to me, litigation is a tool. And I will often tell my clients, okay, the other side's being a jerk. The second they read your complaint, they'll understand. They have no case. That, that's the hope of a, of a lawyer making a claim. And we'll serve the complaint. We'll get a phone call. And we'll start to talk about settlement because who would want to fight this absurd case when the other side has to lose? So I would have imagined your story would be, let's serve up a complaint. They'll see IJ as the plaintiff uh, I, or as plaintiff's counsel. And the IJ will beg you, let's settle and keep this out of the news because we're embarrassed. Is that what happened? I know the answer, but go ahead. Not quite. Uh, uh, sometimes there are cases that does, in fact, happen where the government, you know, uh, puts on what, what some people at IJ call it. Oh, you have a lawyer voice. <laughs> uh, uh, that didn't quite happen here. Um, you know, we, we, we got involved just after, um, it, you know, the government moved for this mass forfeiture action against, you know, as I mentioned, $80 million in cash. And uh, on behalf of some of our clients who were included in that mass forfeiture, the ones who had, you know, valuable property, um, we we were pretty successful early on in getting the government to back down on forfeiting their stuff. But it wasn't easy. They didn't just immediately return it. What instead we had to do was uh, file a request with the court that the government be more specific in why it was trying to forfeit our clients' things. You know, civil forfeiture is not uh, quite a, a, a hallmark of due process, as we talked about earlier. One of the things that it does require is that you give some kind of notice to the property owner explaining what you're alleging they did wrong that justifies the forfeiture of their stuff. And the government didn't do that here because it did it all in one giant swoop and because it really didn't have any reason to think that any individual of our clients, at least, had done anything wrong. They didn't identify any particular crime in their notice to our clients uh, that they thought our clients had committed. And so we filed a request with the court saying, essentially, government needs to put up or shut up. And if it's not going to get more specific in alleging what our, it thinks our clients did wrong, it needs to return their stuff. The government couldn't get more specific because our client hadn't done anything wrong. And so eventually the court said, 
yes, they need to put up or shut up. And the government returned our client's property. But that wasn't the end of the case. Because like I said, we're in this for principles, not just for any other reason. And there's a really important principle at stake here that the government shouldn't just get to rifle through uh, people's things without any individualized probable cause, which is what happened here. And so we were continuing to press on with the case to get the court to declare once and for all that what the government did here, conducting a criminal search when the warrant specifically said they can't do that and misleading a magistrate violates the Fourth Amendment. Um, this case essentially stands for the or stands for the principle that just because uh, the government has uh, reason to think that someone who, let's say, owns an apartment building is conducting a drug sale out of the main office of that building, that doesn't give the government license to search and seize the contents of every apartment in that building, despite not thinking that anybody in any particular apartment did anything wrong when it first walks in. Um, that's a really important Fourth Amendment principle that we're trying to vindicate with this case. And so that's why we pressed on. And when you say you pressed on, um, what is, what, what now is the fight about? Um, right now, there are issues that have been resolved. Your clients have gotten back their money. And by the way, how long did it take, before I ask you my question about principle, how long did it take from the the first day after the raid when your clients were denied access to their property until they got all of their property back uh, with, I presume, a longhand note from Merritt Garland uh, apologizing. Uh, how long did it take? So they didn't all get their things back on the same day. It was a gradual process. Uh, the raid was in March 2021. And it was not for months and months later, I believe October is when the last of our clients got their things back. And there are still people who are on, you know, who we don't represent, who are still trying to get their stuff back from the government. Uh, if I can share one, one quick anecdote that I, I think uh, encapsulates uh, civil forfeiture very quickly. Uh, you know, when the last of our clients uh, was, was given their, their, their things back, it wasn't just like the government put it in a UPS box back to their address. Our clients had to come to the FBI office in Los Angeles uh, to, to come and, you know, have their things handed off them, essentially. And I was lucky enough to, you know, go in a company, two of our clients, to go and do that. And we're there in this conference room in the government, you know, signing some paperwork, saying, yes, we're giving these things back. And our clients have these grocery bags filled with precious metals that was stolen from them in this raid. And the two agents who are facilitating the return as we're getting ready to walk out of the room, say, uh, would you like us to accompany you out to the car? You know, there are some homeless in the area. We wouldn't want you to get robbed. Completely, <laughs> completely oblivious to the fact that the people who had just robbed our clients of their very valuable property for months were now offering to protect them from people that they were saying were robbers. Civil forfeiture turns the police into robbers. And I think that, that, that story kind of en encapsulates it. Now, so the case... The case goes on. Oh, you were suing initially. It was a property case. You wanted the prop. It sounds like you wanted the property. You weren't asking for declaratory relief. Your clients were good citizens. You weren't asking for an apology. I don't think you were asking for damages. Do you be entitled to it? Obviously not. So the case is done. Your clients get their property back, but yet you're still litigating. We're still litigating because in the process of the raid, the government didn't just take all of our clients' things. All our clients have all of their things back, but what it did was take uh, details, take notes of like the, the precious documents and, and heirlooms. And uh, it held, you know, debit and credit cards it found in these boxes up to the camera. And the government's going to keep a record of that forever. Uh, and we want the government or the courts to declare one that what the government did here, going into the boxes at all and lying to the government and lying to the, 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 the magistrate violates the Fourth Amendment. And uh, that because what the government did violated the Fourth Amendment, it needs to destroy all of the records it created that wrongfully uh, of our clients' 
boxes and, and of everyone that we represent's boxes. Um, so the case pressed on. And uh, unfortunately, uh, we have an initial decision from the court. Uh, a, a couple of months ago, the, the court issued uh, its, its ruling on that Fourth Amendment question. Um, the, the court said that, well, sure, you may have all of this evidence that the government was actually trying to conduct a criminal search that the warrant prohibited, you know, the drug sniffing dogs, the form that is totally unconcerned with inventorying uh, the actual stuff in, in, the, in the boxes. Um, you may have all that evidence, but I think what the government did was close enough to an inventory search. So no Fourth Amendment violation. Sorry. Uh, that is, it's a confounding ruling to us. Um, and we're in the process of appealing it. And um, the Ninth Circuit uh, is, is going to hear the case soon. Our opening brief is due next month. Uh, and we're still fighting to get a court to declare that the government's dragnet search of people's property when they had no individualized probable cause uh, uh, to think any of the people had done anything wrong uh, violates the Fourth Amendment and that the government can't lie to a magistrate judge uh, in obtaining a warrant because uh, that violates the Fourth Amendment as well. So you are trying to build, uh, create, undo, use whatever verb one wants, some really bad federal procedures and case law, perhaps, um, and you are taking advantage of this. Uh, lawyers often say bad facts make bad law, a common phrase lawyers will utter, uh, and you are trying to take advantage of some really atrocious facts and run with it and use that as your ticket to ride and see if you can use that good fortune of your client's bad fortune and convert these bad facts into perhaps a useful, at least at the federal circuit court level, uh, so it'll be nice circuit law, uh, a useful precedent um, to rein in this, at least a small part of policing for profit. Is that a fair summary? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, you know, every American's constitutional rights are at stake when the government can... Uh, say that it's going to search one particular place that it has probable cause and use it as a pretext to search plenty of other places that it doesn't have probable cause for and get away with it, uh, that opens the door to all kinds of law enforcement malfeasance that, uh, to, to quote the Fourth Amendment, would, would, would make everybody less secure in their property. Now, of, I guess some of our listeners to this podcast might say the real villain perhaps was not government writ large, but a bunch of rogue, rogue FBI agents and maybe those to whom they report don't know enough about the facts. But the audience may say, hey, Mike, why not go after, by the way, I'm setting you up. You'll know really what I'm setting you up for. Uh, but Mike, why not go after the the FBI agents individually. What a, so, of course, I'm setting you up for your second favorite topic. So I'm using this as an excuse. We have about a minute or two left. Uh, why not just go after the FBI agents and get rid of the bad guys? You're setting me up for uh, a discussion of the immunity doctrines that protect federal and, and state agents from all kinds of rights violations, and they are egregious. Um, the, there is... so. Two, two problems with that in trying to sue for money, essentially, the federal agents that were involved with this. One is that uh, there's a doctrine called, or it used to be that you could sue federal agents for violations of your Fourth Amendment rights pretty clearly. Uh, in recent years, the Supreme Court has really walked that uh, and said that uh, state agents, you can sue for money damages when they violate your right, no problem. Federal agents, though, their courts are much, 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 much more narrow in, in what they allow federal agents to be sued for just because they're federal agents. Um, that is called the Bivens Doctrine, and it, the, the court has really narrowed it a lot in the last few years. And it's, it's a real problem because it allows federal agents to essentially live in a constitution-free zone. The second problem is that even if you could sue federal agents, 
there's the doctrine of qualified immunity, which uh, is among the more problematic things for our constitutional rights across the board. Under that doctrine, state and federal agents are protected from their constitutional violations. They don't have to pay anything. They are not liable if they find a unique enough way to violate your right. Because what qualified immunity says is agents are only liable for clearly established violations of your rights. And what that means in practice is that in order to win against an agent who violates your rights, you have to point to an on-point appellate court precedent in which an agent violated someone's rights in exactly that way before. Otherwise, the agent gets qualified immunity, case closed. And, that, and that's all, we're just running out of time, Mike. That's all judge-made law. The Supreme Court invented that doctrine uh, many years ago uh, to protect uh, the personal assets of governmental officials. Uh, IJ is very much in the forefront of litigating, as is, are many other organizations, the court-created doctrine of uh, qualified immunity, and it's even worse for prosecutors. There, it's absolute, and judges is even absolute. But that's for other shows. Uh, we've been speaking today with Mike Greenberg. Mike is a litigation attorney at the Institute for Justice. The Institute for Justice is the premier public interest law firm. You have, you, my listeners, have a lawyer ready, willing, and able to protect your rights and the rights of everybody you know at no charge to you from the overreaching of our, gut, our, of our government. Mike, thank you so much for the work of the Institute for Justice, the organization that every time I send support to them, I just, it makes me happy. It's, if ever there was a nonprofit, a contribution to a nonprofit for which I get profound personal benefit, it's supporting IJ. Uh, to my friends out there, I know that your time is valuable, and I, and I'm sure Michael, appreciate your sharing an hour with us today. Uh, to, uh, I hope you have found this to be a content-rich and worthwhile hour. There's lots more to follow every week. Please follow my podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Michael for your time. So long for now.